Good morning, Lakeland. I'm Adam. I am director of 5th through 12th grade ministry here at Lakeland. And super excited to be able to worship with you all and join you this morning in the worship through the preaching of God's Word. And in fact, not only will I be doing that this morning, but three of the next five weeks. Um, So yeah, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be able to to do this together. And we are going to be kicking off, uh, as has already been stated so eloquently by the Eltons, uh, a series on Lent. So that's what we're going to dive into this morning. And I want to start this morning with a story and a declaration. And this story and this declaration are going to be the key that unlocks everything that we're going to talk about today. Everything we're going to talk about throughout the entirety of the season of Lent. And I don't say this lightly or flippantly, but it just might be the key that helps us understand our entire relationship with God and our entire purpose on this earth. Whew. We're setting the bar pretty high for ourselves here this morning, aren't we? But I'm confident in us. We're going to do this. So let's go. In January of 2012, I decided to ask my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Hannah, to marry me. I remember this day very clearly. It was a Sunday, and after church, I casually suggested that we go get lunch. And I happened to suggest the same restaurant where we had eaten on our very first date together. So after lunch, I just so happened to drive by the park where we had gone after dinner on that first date. And then as we're walking around the park, I remember saying, oh, we should go over there and swing on that swing set, which was, you guessed it, the swing set where we swung on our first date. And it was there on that swing set that I looked into her eyes and I said, I love you and I want to marry you because, well, you've passed the test. Out of all the girls that I've ever known, you are most suitable for my purposes. Wasn't that romantic? I see some head shaking. No, what? Are you telling me that none of you believes that being suitable for someone's purposes is a beautiful and compelling picture of true love? Hmm. Well, neither do I. Which is why that is most definitely not what I said to my wife on that swing set that day. And it is not what God says to his people Israel here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God tells the people in this chapter, I chose you to be my people. And I love you not because you are greater in number than other peoples. Not because you are the most faithful or the strongest or the most suitable for my purposes. Now, this is it. This is the big reveal. This is the declaration that's going to be the foundation of everything we talk about. Are you ready? 
I chose you and I love you, declares the Lord, because I love you. I love you because I love you. Now, on this first Sunday of Lent, I think it would be helpful for us to pull back here a moment and talk about Lent in general a little bit before we dive back down more specifically into our scriptures for this morning. So, what is Lent? Uh, Mickey did a great job of starting us out on this conversation this morning. Lent is the season of 40 days leading up to Easter where we as the church dwell on Jesus' 40 days of fasting and testing in the desert. Lent is a time for us as Christians to dive more deeply into those things that distract us and push us away from God. Lent is a time of repentance and renewal and certainly preparation for the good news of Easter. Now, why, I think the big question to ask ourselves this morning is why would we participate in a specific Christian season at all? Like, why would we, why would we do this? And the reason is that holy days and holy seasons are our chance to remember the times that God has entered into our midst in incredible and transformational ways. Now, in a perfect world, we would just always be aware of this, right? I mean, God is always coming into our midst and doing incredible things. And we would just always, every day of our lives, we would be aware of that. But if we're being honest and practical, we have to admit that we need special times of remembering We need special seasons to prepare our hearts to encounter God and be changed by God. This is the very point of our our, um, Milestones ministry here at Lakeland. If you've had a chance to participate in our Milestones, hopefully this rings true for you already. If you haven't, um, well, now it's a good time to start. There's never a bad time. So keep an eyes and ears out. I think we have announcements even today about Milestones Uh, that you can jump into. So, that's what Lent means in general. What about for Lakeland specifically? What about for us in this very moment? My goal for us as a church during Lent is this, that we would connect with God in a real and life-changing way And that we would again turn toward God for our vision, our posture, and our heart for the entire world. Now, how will we get there? We will use biblical stories of the wilderness, the desert, as our context for understanding how God uses such times and seasons in our own lives If you will take this journey with me over the next several weeks, if you will willingly and voluntarily enter into the wilderness yourselves, I have a strong belief that you will hear from God. 
that you will be turned and brought closer to him. Now, this is no small hope, right? This is huge. This is immense what we're asking for this morning. For God himself to utilize events that occurred thousands and thousands of years ago to cause a renewal of our hearts and our spirits right here today in Lee Summit, Missouri in the year 2021. For the almighty creator of the universe to care so much about our lives and our journey that he would move toward us to bring us closer to him and connect with our hearts and minds in a real and meaningful way. And yet, I mean, this is, this is huge, right? What we're asking for is massive. And yet, we are confident that God will be faithful to do this and more. What kind of God do we have for whom all of that could be true? A God who loves us because he loves us. Let's set the stage a little bit this morning by getting everybody caught up on this grand story that leads us up to this point. How did we get here in this wilderness referenced in Deuteronomy 7? God's people, the Israelites, had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years under extreme, harsh, even murderous conditions. But through the prophet Moses and a series of wondrous signs, God had rescued his people, brought them out of Egypt, and was leading them to the promised land, the land of Canaan, a land that God had promised to give to his people as a home since the time of Abraham. Now it's described in the Bible as a wonderful place that the people are absolutely going to love. A land where milk and honey flow, it says. Just as a quick aside, that, for some reason that always reminds me of ice cream. It makes me think of ice cream. Which then in turn actually does make me feel closer to heaven. So I guess it all works out. But how does God intend to get the people to this wonderful place? Well, most certainly not by the fastest route. Sometimes my wife will say to me, hey, I'm getting ready to, to go to such and such place in Lee Summit or really almost anywhere in the Kansas City area. Uh, which route should I take and, and how long will it take me to get there? Now, why would she ask me this question instead of just like consulting Google Maps or something? Because she knows I have it timed. You can name almost any place, and I can tell you almost exactly how long that it takes to get there. I can be like, well, if you take Route A, uh, it's going to get you there two minutes faster than any other way that you go. Oh, except for between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m., in which case you're probably going to want to take Route B, and that'll save you three and a half minutes from Route A in that particular instance. I get it. This is a little crazy, right? I am borderline obsessed with 
time and root efficiency when it comes to travel. But God's not like me. The fastest route does not matter to God here. God's not worried about efficiency. Instead, God takes the people through the desert, what the book of Exodus calls the wilderness. And the wilderness is going to be a really, really important illustration and metaphor for us throughout this entire season of Lent. What is the wilderness? The wilderness is a place of testing, and it is a place of noticing. And we will spend the rest of our time this morning diving a little bit more deeply into these two truths. We'll start with number one. The wilderness is a place of testing. When God brought the people of Israel into the desert, they had some choices to make. Would they trust him to provide for their needs? Would they believe that he would do what he said he would do? Would they continue to follow him wherever they let, he led them? They had choices to make. And for any of you who have ever come into contact with this period of Bible history before, you probably already know they bombed spectacularly. They failed the test. They failed all of the tests. They complained about the food and the water that they had access to in the desert. They grumbled and threatened to overthrow Moses as their leader. They even flat out refused to enter into the promised land that God had brought them to out of their fear and distrust of God. So this is obviously super bad news for Israel. And from the standpoint that we can ourselves relate to Israel's struggles, it also doesn't seem like great news for us either. But this is not the only biblical story of testing in the wilderness. As we previously mentioned, Jesus, too, experienced this. Immediately after being baptized by John the Baptist, the Gospels tell us that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into what? The beginning of his ministry? Directly, efficiently heading into the fulfillment of his goals and purpose as Messiah? Well, not exactly. The Bible tells us the Spirit first led Jesus into the desert, into the wilderness. Let's read about this together in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, 
he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So Jesus, too, was tested, tempted even, Matthew tells us, by the devil himself. The first temptation was for Jesus to doubt God's provision and love in the harsh circumstances he found himself in. Now, there is nothing inherently sinful, to my knowledge, not that I've ever tried it, about turning stones into bread. But in this particular case, doing so would have signified a lack of trust in God's ability to provide what was needed for survival. Sound familiar? Yeah, this is exactly one of the tests that the Israelites were unable to pass. Now, the second temptation was similar to the first. Do something to prove that God's got you taken care of, that he will rescue you if you're ever in trouble. And the third temptation was for Jesus to turn his back on God for the sake of power and control and comfort. Again, this is very similar to what the Israelites had faced 1,500 years earlier. Except, this time, Jesus passed the test with flying colors. Now, there's two different ways that we could understand how what Jesus did in the wilderness and what the Israelites did in the wilderness are connected. First, the not-as-helpful way. (laughs) We could think of Jesus being tested in the desert as a consequence of Israel's failure in the desert. In other words, we could believe that Israel was given the first, the real test. And because they failed, Jesus had to come along and clean up their mess. Like, maybe God was hoping that the Israelites could pass the test, but he had Jesus waiting in the wings just in case they couldn't. This is not the best way to understand what is happening here. Rather, the real testing in the desert is Jesus' testing. It was always Jesus' testing, and Jesus was always going to pass this test. Now wait, you might be saying, Wouldn't that actually make the Israelites' testing seem trivial or worthless? Like, it didn't even mean anything. No, not at all. The testing of the Israelites is an incredibly important illustration. And it painted a very clear picture 
for them and for us of their need for a Savior and his ability to pass the test. For if it were the other way, if God really meant for the Israelites' test to be the real one, the primary one, and Jesus had to come in and clean up their mess in the aftermath, where would that leave the Israelites in their failure? With guilt and with shame. Where would that leave us in our failures? With a constant struggle and a battle to measure up. To be good enough to be considered God's people. To live up to the high standard that Jesus left us with. But if it's Jesus' test that's the real one, what then is our response? Gratitude. Over the moon, thankfulness for Jesus and his victory. You see, our failures are always but a shadow of the victory of Jesus. This is why there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, as Paul tells us. There is no guilt. There is no shame. There is only our recognition of our need for Jesus. Our admission that we desperately have to have a Savior. And thankfully, we do. Remember the declaration of Deuteronomy 7. I love you because I love you. How does that help us unlock this part of the story? God did not choose Israel because they were the most likely to pass the test. God did not call to you because he believed you were most likely to live a flawless life. God loves us because he loves us. But in an amazing and incredible twist, that is exactly the kind of God with whom we become more and more likely to pass tests. Let's move to our second statement about the wilderness this morning. The wilderness is a place of noticing. The wilderness is a place of desolation, the place God leads us out to, to remove our distractions, to teach us to see him, to give us a better chance to hear his voice. You see, perhaps the most important question that we should be asking ourselves this morning is, why? Why is that what matters to God? Why? Would God lead the people of Israel around and around and around in the crazy hot desert instead of just taking them directly where they wanted to go? Why do our own lives feel like that sometimes? Why does it sometimes feel like God's just not giving us the answer that we have been desperately praying to hear? Why does it sometimes feel like God's letting us just stumble around in the desert 
of our own fears and pain and struggle. To answer these important questions, and these are incredibly important questions, let's take a look at what God tells the Israelites in Exodus chapter 19. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You have seen with your own eyes what I did to take you up out of Egypt, declares the Lord. And now I'm going to tell you why I did it. Because the point of salvation and redemption and rescue is never just to get you out of something but to bring you to someone. The point of salvation and redemption and rescue is never just to get you out of something, but to bring you to someone. We struggle with this one, brothers and sisters. We get this wrong in our our personal everyday lives. We get this wrong in the church sometimes. We get this wrong in society as a whole. The point was never just the rescue of God's people from their slavery in Egypt. The point was bringing those people into communion, into relationship with God. I brought you to myself. God says, anytime God has helped you, anytime he has brought you rest or peace or hope or joy, the point was never those things in and of themselves. The point was a relationship with God that was hopefully now more noticeable more recognizable and more compelling than it was before the intervention, before the rescue. Now, here's where it's really going to come home to our own Linton wilderness right here in Lee Summit in 2021. Because the real kicker is, if we accept that, if we recognize that it is true we must also recognize the possibility that the best way for God to bring us close to him is through a lack of intervention by withholding rescue from an earthly problem or issue. Oftentimes, difficult circumstances and the uncertainty of the wilderness reveal to us, they give us a clear picture of the true object of our faith. Is it God? Or like the Israelites, is it our hunger or thirst? Is it power? Is it control? Is it comfort? 
Is it acceptance or praise or fame? It is possible that the best place for us to find what we need most in our lives, and that is a real, meaningful, authentic relationship with the one who made us, is the desert, the wilderness, a place of longing and despair, confusion and pain, So much of our bewilderment and our misunderstanding of our relationship with God rests on this counterintuitive and countercultural realization. We tend to default to the mistaken belief that God's primary motive is that we live a good, happy, comfortable life. Now let's, of course, not go too far the other way and make God out to be some kind of sadist who only wants us to experience pain and suffering, because that would be an equally absurd and unscriptural view of God. But what is the goal? What's the win for God? It's God being our God and us being his people. It's God loving and adoring us as his children and us loving and adoring God as our father, the quintessential picture of a loving relationship. God loves you because he loves you. And sometimes it takes a daring, amazing, incredible rescue on God's part For us to realize that. And sometimes it takes a desert. (laughs) Now the first time that Jesus was tempted by Satan in, in the verses that we read earlier in Matthew, the first temptation that Satan gives him, you know when he says, if you turn stones into bread, you know if you're hungry and you need something to eat, Jesus responds to Satan by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. One chapter after the verses that we read to begin this morning. Jesus says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if we pull back on that and we look at that passage that Jesus is quoting from, it's even more illuminating. Let's do that together. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, And let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, but who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. In quoting this passage, Jesus is saying, what is most important is not what is physically necessary for life, even bread and water. But what will do you most good in the end? Your reliance on and relationship with God. Because throughout all of our wandering in the wilderness, God is with us, looking out for us, watching over us, guiding us through that time so that it will do us good in the end and will bring us closer to him During this season of Lent, during our journey as a church through the wilderness over these next 40 days, let us strive to be drawn closer to God. And let this be our realization and our declaration this Lent. It is not about living up It is not about being good enough to be called God's children. Jesus has passed the test. God loves us because he loves us. Amen.